want you to listen. Then what? Share it. The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boonarong and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea. Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge on Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening. All right, welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. I'm Josh. And I'm Nat. And today we're joined by Shane. Howdy. Hi. Shane, could you please uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Mm. Sure. I'm Shane and I'm a social worker and family therapist by trade and a father of two strapping men, young men. Uh, Max, <laughs> I love that. Max 20, Lewis 18. Um, and married to Claire. Um, and I'm a, I'm a New Zealander originally. Yes. So I've been over here, over here. For, uh, for, I, I was trying to figure it out today because I knew we, we were going to do this. I, I think it's I think it's thirty two or thirty three years. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I'm actually now officially have spent more time in Australia than I have in New Zealand. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think actually that might be incorrect. I, uh, no, no, I'm wrong. I'm wrong by a year. Yeah, I'm turning fifty seven. So okay. No, that's right. I'm right. Yeah, 24 years. What am I saying? I'm, I'm useless at maths. That's the other thing. <laughs> I was going to say, I have yeah, no help yeah, to you. That's yeah, why yeah, I'm not yeah, helping. 24 years there, 33 years here. So, wow. Um, and I became an Australian citizen uh, so I could vote for Bob, uh, for, um, I was impressed by Bob Hawke. So yes. I came. He was still in power. Okay. And um, became an Australian citizen so I could partake in this great country's political system so I could vote for Keating. Oh. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, I, I, yeah, that's that's me. Awesome. Do you have side sidebar question? But do yeah. you have family in New Zealand? Still? All, all my family's in New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, people are dying on me over there, which is sort of sad. Mm. Um, yeah, I I have a mother still there who's still alive. She's quite unwell, so it's really hard mm. during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I go over there quite a bit to see her, and so um, yeah, she's there and uh, still on the hood. And uh, I, I have some cousins and other relatives I'm just finding out about, actually. My oh, mother really? had a um, had a forced adoption when she was, uh, you know, in her late teens. Wow. And um, her son, has adopted son, has just made contact with her a couple of years ago and I've oh, met wow. him recently and, and he has a whole family and that's really neat. It's, yeah. it's kind of... Um, it's great to be a part of something where you've sort of known that story. I've known that story from my mother's perspective and now uh, to see the joy and the kind of fulfilment of her reuniting with her son is really quite special. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Probably partly why I'm a family therapist, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah, yeah. Kind of links back. 
Yeah, that's crazy. Heck yeah. So did so did he when he was adopted? He's been his adoptive parents have have had him from when he was born until yeah was forever. She she would have had him yeah uh, in the fifties yeah and uh, she didn't get to even I think she held him and that was it mm. yeah. taken away immediately. And did he know he was adopted? Yes, uh, yes. The, his parents were really good about that. Okay, mm. and. Uh, uh, it's just a classic story about those times of mm. uh, of how you know brutal that was for a young woman. Yeah, and it was never spoken about in her family, and uh, she didn't have any other contact. There was no kind of until recently when they changed the law. I think they changed the law at the same time in New Zealand that they did in Australia, where contact was a, was sort of open to kind of know who your biological parent was and, mm. and the biological parent was sort of kind of allowed to kind of also find out where um, uh, her adopted son or daughter went. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so it happened relatively recently and, yeah, it's kind of been neat and interesting. So you never know what's going to happen, in, you know, in terms of no. family. And Although I, I did know that story. Mm. Um, for a while. Yeah, yeah. that story is a, you know, young person for quite some time. How yeah. cool that he's reached out as well. I think yeah, that's awesome nice. and they've, ha- they've yeah. been able to connect and you've been able to connect. Yeah. I think yeah. you hear stories where people look for their biological parents and they can't find them and, you know, it's it was before the laws were changed, especially it was extremely hard. So yes. that's really lovely to hear. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so... Um, Families are complicated, right? They are. <laughs> You're All an expert on that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you tell us. Yeah. <laughs> Am I starting? Yeah. yeah, sure. So the first question is, what did your parents do for work? Well, uh, I grew up in South Auckland, which is uh, uh, an outer suburb of, of Auckland City. It's now called Manukau City. And uh, it's mainly, it's a very disadvantaged part of New Zealand. You know, lots of unemployment and... High crime rate, rate and uh, and um, you know, a really serious working class suburb. A high proportion of Pacifica people live in Maori people live in uh, that area. Oh. Uh, and uh, so, my dad drove trucks and worked in factories, and my mum delivered mail and fought off dogs as they tried to attack them. I think it's, yeah. So that was that was uh, that was their profession. Yeah, I always wanted to drive trucks. Yeah. Yeah, but. Uh, Sort of weirdly looked up to my father. I say that because he was um, a violent man. He'd come back from the Korean War, mm. so this alcoholic and very violent towards my mother and me. And uh, of course, I still wanted to, in a way, as a kid, wanted to kind of, in some weird way, wanted to join with him and connect with him. And mm. that clearly carried on because I became a truck driver myself for a while. Oh, oh there Did you go. you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, go figure. And when I came over here, I drove buses and trucks for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. even though I had a degree. <laughs> Good uh, way to get to know the area, though, I suppose. Yeah. You? Fantastic yeah. way to get to That'd know. That'd be Melway style, yeah. yeah. Too back then, you'd have to be. I was totally Melway style. Yeah. yeah. Lots of um, lots of difficulty getting around the city and not doing deliveries on time and all, oh. of, all of that palaver. Mm. Yeah. What'd you deliver? Oh, it was a casual truck driver, so okay. I just, you know, I was a gun for hire, Josh. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> just anything. Uh, 
Yeah. Sure. My favourite job, though, when I first came out, when I first immigrated here was as a tyre baller in Thomastown for Bridgestone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are you talking about when they moved the... T- Sorry, I've, I might be completely off the mark, but I've seen the guys... Have you ever seen the guys when they're moving the tyres around and they roll them? That, that's exactly... And then they land, like, they make a little ramp out of one yeah. which bounces it up and then they put it in the back of the truck. Am I butchering? Yeah. How do you know this? I've seen them do it out the front of a, an auto shop and I was right. I was like, going to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So when they're moving <laughs> yeah. tight, I mean, you'd, you'd probably tell the best, Shane. Well, I don't know about this, but I, I was sort of like a, a young intellectual sort of sophisticate from North Fitzroy where I was living. Oh, yeah. fancy. <laughs> yeah, had to go out to, you know, at, at um, whatever age I was, 25, and had to go out to Thomastown to do this job and... Um, uh, yeah, 35 bucks an hour in Oof. 1988. That is a lot of money. Cleaning it. And uh, used to head to load, used to have to load four semi-trailers a day and then you could finish. Okay. So I just went berserk. Yeah. Yeah, got it. A lot of them got out of there. Did you do that, that right. same? Yeah, no, yeah. you were exactly right. Right. Yeah. You got you got guns, like you really were lifting a lot of, buying a lot of tyres in a day. Yeah. You know, it's... They roll the tyres like, a, I don't know, probably say 10, 15 metres apart. But yeah. at the tyre, as it's incoming, they put another tyre down at an angle so that the tyre that's rolling towards you hits that tyre and jumps up. And then you can then shift that tyre into the truck more easily yeah. than bending all the way down to the ground to pick it up. They just It's like a little production line. They just go flying out the door. I'm going to yeah. have to Google this. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it. I've um, got a really interesting yeah. <laughs> image in my head, so it would be good <laughs> to see really what cool. it actually looks like as opposed yeah. to what I've imagined. But... So, Work smarter, not harder, right? So yeah, right. So what it led, what what I didn't realise then is sort of like talk about things coming around and uh, full circle is that so I had a couple of jobs in those days. One was bus driving for Bell Street Bushes, which is no longer, mm. and uh, and tyre bowling, and um, in the in the depot in the you know in the staff room you'd a smoke over you'd uh, everybody would get around and start gambling. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, I was aghast by that because I was poor and the last thing I want to do is waste my money gambling. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I was always not, not never into it. Uh, however, um, when I was at Burberry, we had a big contract delivering sort of family-sensitive practice and a whole lot of other kind of ideas of brief therapy to um, the gambling sector. So it sort of came full circle in a way. Yeah. Wow. There you go. How interesting. I always find it interesting when there's, like, little gambling side gigs mm. or what's the one that's, like, underground? You're talking about from the Jay Rogan podcast? Yeah. With the yeah. numbers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would bet on... Have you heard that one? What's that one? Uh, it's in America, I guess, yeah. and they bet on the last... If I can remember correctly, that... So the, the races would race for the day. Yeah. And it would... They would they would public... Uh, they would um, publish... Um, the amount of money taken on the day. And then within the community, the, the people would bet on the last three digits of that number that would be published in the afternoon paper. Mm. Wow. So they would go yeah. around and people would, and it was complete just... That's just desperate. Bullshit. Yeah. Like, it was just guessing. Yeah. But, um, so the Joe Rogan podcast is a guy on there, Joey Diaz, who talks yeah. about it and he does these great voices of all these people. Um and he's Cuban and, and he talks about, I think it was his mother or his grandmother who was very suspicious. Yeah. So he may, she may see something come up on the TV or uh, someone walk past in a jersey that had a number on it and she'd be like, 
Oh, superstitious. Yeah, she'd be like, they're the numbers, Joey, go now, put the money, <laughs> put the money on the, on the numbers. And yeah, yeah. there's just this underground yeah. community run thing that was just a complete, like I said, fluke sort of uh but yes. so random, such a random thing to bet oh, on as yeah. well. That's why I think it's so interesting. Yeah, it's weird, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's sort of, like, I guess this one takeaway from that time for me is that, um, you know, I kind of want to take the high moral ground on it because uh, I realised this was a fantastic country and as some say, the lucky country when I was down to my last 50 bucks um, and had to make rent and for sure, <laughs> clearly short, and um, I... I bet 50 bucks on the nose for Empire Rose to come in in a Melbourne Cup, and she did. Yeah, yeah right. And <laughs> There's a rent. <laughs> there was more than rent. Yeah. There was quite a bit of money. I think it was like 500, paid 500 bucks or maybe a bit more. Oh, wow. Maybe 700, I can't remember. Wow. It was a lot of money. That's cool. And uh, paid rent, and the rest is history. <laughs> Loved it. Like, put a down payment on a second-hand car, Holden. Oh, cute. <laughs> it was great. That's cool. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Got to get a Holden. Everyone's needs a Holden, yeah, right? Yeah. For mm. sure. Um, so the next question is, who is the most famous or well-known person in your phone book? Well, I've done my research and because uh, I knew this question was coming and I have to say um, I've had lots of brushes with famous people, mm-hmm. oh. including, may I say, dinner with uh, Joel Edgerton and Kathy Freeman when they were going out together. Oh. Oh, I didn't even know they went out. Oh, no. Well, there you go. You see it. <laughs> well, it's only today. That's a long time ago. That's Clearly, pretty cool. Yeah. Old news. Mm. Uh, however, I, I was thinking about that, that as corny as this may sound, that uh, I was thinking I actually know a lot of fairly ordinary people who do remarkable things. Mm. And so I, I kind of think that um, I think that's sort of inspiring really. And if we think about you know, our field and how we kind of engage with people that we work with, it's a really good frame to kind of take into conversations into people's lives, I think. Mm. Mm. And uh, so, uh, for example, um, I know the first editor of the domain section of, um, you know, The Age, which has turned into this multi-million dollar business, you know, domain, real estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Denise was the first editor. Wow. And uh, her husband, Paul, who was a very good friend of mine who died two years ago, was the first CEO of the Future Fund of Australia. And, you know, he kind of was a humble teacher to start with, Mm. just had an economics degree, and we worked together as temps in uh, 1989 at... (laughs) National Australia Financial Management. And he clearly kicked on. Yeah. <laughs> did, something, did something, you know, uh, with serious monetary gain. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, economics. That sounds like something yeah. that you'd get paid so, big bucks in. And, uh, and another example would be Claire, my partner's brother, Chris, who sadly died in January, who was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Oh, wow. What? Yeah. And you've never heard of his name, right? No. no. That's, Chris yeah. Amy's. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He headed up a team that um, changed how people in the world uh, radiate cancer. He, he's, he was a mathematician who specialised in um, oncology medicine mm. and he formulated a formula that calibrated the radio, radiation machine so it only killed cancer cells and not healthy cells. <laughs> and you never heard wow. of him, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's also, just before he died, he headed up a team that just produced the first prototype of a radiation machine 
that you can move in. So the laser ah. locks on and you can move in it. Yeah. In the past, you had to be locked down and locked in really tight. And so for people with serious anxiety disorders and and claustrophobia and yeah. for people who were just had living with a disability and chip kids, it didn't work for them. Yeah. So this new machine now opens up a ho- the whole field to people who can move in these machines and get proper radiation therapy. Mm. And so I think, you know, people like that are... I'm kind of proud to yeah. call my friends. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Pretty remarkable stuff. Yeah. That's crazy. That's cool. Nice one. Yeah, I've always nice wondered stuff. that because you see on, um, like, a lot of the medical shows when they tell them to not move, and I've had a couple of scans myself, and you can't move, and I've always thought that. Imagine if you had to sit mm. in this machine for an extended period of time, but obviously I'm not the only one that's thought of that. Yeah, I was thinking, like, you know, like um, I think... But I'm not sure about all famous people, but I think people who make a name for themselves uh, probably share some characteristics with people like Chris and Paul and Denise because they're kind of driven and have a like single-minded purpose, mm. like, kind of pretty disciplined, and uh, I think that's kind of inspiring. Mm. I'm probably not quite as driven or, or disciplined. Or, I try to be. Yeah. Uh, it, it waxes and wanes a bit. <laughs> I think that happens for everyone, though, to be fair. <laughs> Um, so the next one is, what job wouldn't you do? Yeah, well, I'm not sure about that. Gee. Well, because uh, it sounds like you've done a lots. variety, so I've it'd be hard to... Yeah. It's, there's not many jobs I wouldn't do, believe me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I think probably the obvious answer is uh, a job that kind of, you know, interferes with my kind of sense of ethics and values probably. Mm. Um and uh, one, and, I, and, I, and I will, while I'm kind of scooting around that, I'll give you an example. I was thinking about what would be an example because it's easy. I think when I was younger, I probably, there's lots of jobs I wouldn't have done because, you know, I thought ideologically they were right. And I think as I've mellowed, I think, well, there's parts of those jobs, I'm sort of a bit more forgiving mm. and understand context a bit more and think, oh, well, you know, there's probably parts of the police force I would be engaged with, actually. There's lots mm. of coppers I've met who are kind of incredibly... Mm fair-minded people who are absolutely serving this community well. So as an example, yeah. when I was younger, no way. Yeah. Um, so I think probably if I'm being if you if I'm being transparently one job that comes to mind currently, which I just could never go out, would be uh, working at a detention centre for refugees, like on Manus mm. Island or Nauru or Christmas Island. I think I just could, could not come at that. Yeah. Yeah, these circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Be wild. Mm. I couldn't do it. Uh, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? <laughs> wow, <laughs> just one. I'm sure there's been a few. <laughs> Hard to forget. Some of it's <laughs> yeah. Um, I know it's hard to take on advice, isn't it? Especially when you're younger, because you kind of like think, "Oh, fuck you!" Like, yeah, yeah, we've said that before. I think there's a couple of pieces. I, I think uh, one would be just be true to yourself. And I think I've listened to a few of your podcasts and there's variations on that from a lot of people, I think, you've interviewed. Like, yeah. Sort of, like, just kind of be authentic and genuine. And, yeah. yeah. So I think being true to yourself is really important. And mm. for me that means um, kind of investigating your identity and mm. um, your sense of your sense of how you create meaning in life. Mm. And that's 
just not static. I think that sort of moves and develops as you move and develops as a person. So that's been one that I've sort of, I think, um, I kind of come back to from time to time, depending on what's going on for me or, or where I am in my life. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the other one I think is really important, and I got, forget who told me this as a young person, and it still rings true today, and like talk's cheap. Mm. It's like deeds, not words. Mm. And the way I frame it now would be, um, you know, in theory or reflection's fine, it's your behaviour that really counts. Mm. Yeah. I think we're in a, in a realm where we really value reflective practice in, in our field and that is terrific and I'm a big proponent for it. Mm. And I guess I'd say to that that it, that is only useful when behaviour changes. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I think that because um, I've, I've used and more jokingly I sing this song um, a little less conversation, a little more action. Mm. Elvis, yeah. was that Elvis? Yeah. 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 Like I've sung that jokingly a lot. Yeah. I probably, yeah. And I, but it's like, it's kind of frustrating sometimes when you are talking about it all the time or you're yeah. having a reflection about it all the time, whether it's in work or personal life. But yeah. it's like, that's, can we action some of these things now or can we see it actually happening in practice or in on the footy field, like whatever it is you're talking about. Um, I really like that one that you've, yeah, for me personally, I, li- I like that one. Yeah, it's mm. sort of like a, yeah. uh, a critique of my field. So I've probably been concentrating more on therapy and psychotherapy for a long time now. And I'll never forget my roots as a social worker because basically good old-fashioned advocacy, structural social work, referrals, getting shit done with people is incredibly important and the most important thing you can do. Mm. If you get to kind of the other other stuff, which seems to have some sort of weird high status, which I don't know why it does, frankly, Mm. is really useful. However, just useful things are Mm. really important for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's one of the other things, I guess, that I've thought about, just that point you made that... um, useful things are really important for people because there's so many, like, theories and frameworks for mm. different things with youth work and social work, yeah. and which are all really great. Um, but it's kind of like, can we cut, can we just lose all the buzzwords and can we kind of lose the theory that you're explaining and kind of get to the nuts and bolts of it instead of kind of having this big layer of, and I feel like I'm even losing my words as I'm explaining it, which is I'm doing a really terrible job, but... I think I get what you're saying, though, and I think one of the common things that comes up, you know, when I think of as soon as you were saying that, Shane, the first thing I think of is, like, managing a complex care team. It's it's very easy for staff to sit in care teams and to have discussions about a young person, but Mm. if you're just going to continue to talk about it and not action anything, like the referrals or, you know, like organising an appointment for something or whatever that might be, you're not going to see any change either. So let's stop talking about it and see some action. Mm. Yeah, hobby, job, education. Yeah, and everywhere. You can apply it everywhere. It's not just like yeah. a youth work or a social work thing. Like you can apply that in your own mm. life. Well, sometimes in complex care teams, people get overwhelmed with the kind of complexity of the presentation mm. and kind of it's kind of really good to check it with the client and just pick one thing that the yeah. client wants to do and just do that. That's yeah. kind of like start anywhere mm. Just, mm. and probably where, the, where it's client-centred is useful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, I did a stint in Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services and I'll never forget it. 
and mum didn't make it in to see her child who was really, really unwell in the inpatient unit. And the team speculated on a really kind of blaming way about why the mum had made it in. And um, as it turned out, the mum literally couldn't afford the bus fare. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was off pay week. Wow. Things that happened with the other kids. It was it was a structural issue. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so just really always cemented for me, go back to basics with people around, you know, structural inequality in our society and mm. how do we help people with who, who are vulnerable, who have serious disadvantage, just um, get on top of that. Mm. It's a good point. And I love that you've brought up that well, what does the client want? Because often it's something that's lost, isn't it? Yeah. We want to link them with education. We want to get them a job. We yeah. They need to address their mental health. Let's get, engage them in drug and alcohol. There's all of these things that are constantly <laughs> thrown around. Yeah. Like, well, what does the client want? Mm. Yeah. Is that what they want to do? Take and the back. crisis too. Like there's always a crisis. But yeah. then it's like, but that's their crisis that they're probably pretty used to and comfortable in. It's a crisis for us, but... How do they feel Yeah, that that period of time is for them and do they feel in control or have the ability to con- keep controlling the situation? Yeah. Because we're all freaking out, but are mm. they actually freaking out? Yeah. And maybe they are, but maybe they're not. It's yeah. just their care team. Well, it's a double-edged crisis, isn't it? Because sometimes it can be the, the side of great change uh, yeah. and development and growth or, and also it can be, um, it can just get in the way of doing other work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The last one is what um, was your aha moment? Right. Well, uh, gee, I think the probably most profound aha moment I've had was uh, when I was working in the homelessness sector uh, and um, I forget why I did it. I think I started it was reading a bit more widely, widely than what I normally do and sort of getting into family work and I um, sort of engaged with narrative therapy and gone down and um, sort of bathed in the reflective glory of Michael White, who was the, you know, the, um, the great narrative therapist and teacher from, uh, from those days, now deceased, and uh, thought and then just started to think, well, how can I kind of incorporate family work into my work with homeless young people and just gave it a go. I didn't kind of know what I was really doing. Mm. Just sort of gave it a go and um, it was absolutely profound. It really changed the way I thought about my work and thought about my practice generally and thought about relationships and, uh, yeah, from then on I've, really been very, very interested in not only family work but also systemic kind of thinking, mm. whether it's with individuals, families or organisations or even broader, yeah, or sectors. So, yeah, that was my, my aha moment, realising that uh, the, 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 the turning point was a young man I worked with who, was, uh, who I'd worked with on the streets of Melbourne who was floridly psychotic and had befriended him over a series of... Uh, engagements and it took months and then uh, kind of influenced him enough to think about maybe um, trying, psych- you know, medication. Mm. 
And that took a while and he gave it a go. He trusted me enough to give it a go. So something there about, like, I think, I think you two would be able to speak to this better than I would be around, like, you know, the kind of absolute uh, importance of relationships in the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, massive. Uh, anyway, he trusted me enough to give it a go. He got stable medication. And um, then I suggested he hadn't seen his family for five years. They'd written him off. And so I said, look, he wasn't prepared to kind of make the first uh, for a to kind of make contact, mm. I said, look, will you, will you, can I, can I look up your mum and dad and kind of reach out? And he trusted me enough by then to say, all right, you can give it a go. Not not, not hopeful. Yeah. And um, I rang his mum and introduced myself and said I was working with this young man and she literally cried on the phone mm. and I explained her situation and she, said, she just said, oh, it's just terrible. I thought I'd lost my son. Mm. We've missed mm. him. We've missed him all this time. And the way that was framed to us, the way we thought about it was that he was bad. Mm. He was just a bad person. What led to the breakdown at home for him to decide to leave or be kicked out? Or? Uh, he, like he got into crime and sort of was, you know, on the streets for a long time and, and um, he was actually really mentally unwell. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And uh, the school didn't support him well and kind of didn't understand, and did, sort of didn't understand, no one understood. Mm. This is, I'm talking, I'm going back. Over 20 years. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably 25 years. And um, and they had no, so they had no one working with them to kind of understand it in a way that was kind of useful for them either. And so you know, they'd get angry and blaming. Mm. Yeah. And he just pissed off. Mm. Is it for five years? Wow. Yeah. I was about to say for how long? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's a long time. Do you find that a lot of, um, or pretty frequently that a lot of the family work that you do is or a big part of it is reframing young people's behaviours and actions to parents who don't understand? Well, yes, and it's reframing uh, behaviours of parents to young people mm. so they can appreciate and understand that as well. Right? Like mm. It's a system, it's a relationship, it's a dynamic, it's not one way. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to kind of think and discuss that with uh, you know, with youth workers. I know that you're both dedicated uh, youth workers. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, and I'm not saying this now. I think in the old, I think people, youth work's clearly changed. And, uh, and in the old days, uh, <laughs> there's a, a pretty kind of unuseful blaming lens towards parents. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that... Um, what I learned from my own family pretty quickly <laughs> growing up because uh, uh, because of the difficulty I kind of encountered as a young person uh, was that families can be the site of great harm and difficulty and trauma and they can also be the site of great healing and compassion and kind of and happiness. Mm. And they can come from the same people. Yeah. It's that complicated. Uh, and often young people that I've worked with just want to be safe mm. uh, and they still even in the most distressing uh, circumstances and people that I've dealt with who've like even sexual abuse mm. uh, people want to be safe and often and quite shockingly I think to to myself and those that and also to, to generally to workers is that those people still want to have some form of relationship with um, the person who's being the source of the abuse often, which mm. is kind of challenging. Yeah. Um, 
So it's complicated, I think. Yeah. I had a similar, like, I had an aha moment similar to what you're describing, which made me understand so much. Like I was working with this young man. Um, Mum had all, like, mental health issues, substance use issues, history of trauma of her own, and then yeah. onto her, her, her son who was in out-of-home care and in and out of custody and all, you know, all, all the things. And um, CP obviously didn't want him living at home and he wasn't meant to be living at home, but he was always going back home. And I remember picking him up once and I said to him, it's like, dude, why do you keep going back there for? Like, and he goes, she's my mum. Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about what she gets him to do, the abuse that she makes, you know, verbal abuse that she gives him, all the things that have all happened in his past and things like that. Mm. They're, they're kind of, it's just, it's always going to be there that that's his mum. And then it made me realise like, oh, gosh. You know, I could just won't ever ask that question again. Like I learned so much in that one little conversation with him. Mm. But um, yeah, where did it end up with with that young fella and the oh. family stuff? Progress? Top fine. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, how lovely wow. is that? That's cool. Yeah. They would have been so happy to hear after five years that he was okay. Because imagine like every day being yeah. like. We don't know where he is. We don't know if he's dead. Well, the only way that you could get in contact with your parents back then would be a payphone yeah. or yeah, that's you right. would rock yeah. around there yeah. or yeah. someone would contact yeah. them for you. Like yeah, your like options are super limited. There's not. Send them a message on Facebook, I'm still alive. Or, yeah. you know, text message or chuck a phone. Like, is, you know, yeah. I would imagine back then as well, like the homelessness population or and just... People in general would it would be a lot harder to track people down if you were trying to do outreach and things. Uh, you, would you, be impossible. On the streets, dedicated on the streets work every day. Mm. Yeah, getting in people's faces and we've talked about that before on the podcast because that yeah. doesn't really happen anymore, does it? Oh, I don't do feel mean? like it does. Do I feel like we have planned outreach. What's but, happened to your generation? Well, <laughs> I agree. Like, I've joked about it on on here, and I've called it either like dirty, grimy youth work in a in a positive sense, yes. right? Yeah, or yeah, like yeah. Les Twentyman youth work, which was as a yeah, young right. guy, he was always yeah. the face of youth work in Melbourne. And it was sort of yeah, right. Painted this narrative of being out on the streets and spending time with people, and you know, okay. But it's uh, that sort of yeah, that kind of after dark on the street, hanging out with with people. Sounds yeah. like what you were doing then and, and kind of like what the Streetworks program does now. Are you mm. familiar with that one? Not so familiar. Yeah. Um, yeah I, but yeah. I feel like it doesn't really happen. I feel like we plan right. to go and visit kids or if they're missing or we haven't seen them for a while, we right. kind of cruise around, drive some places. I, I think the concept like, that we've sort of thrown around before is that the whole like we have to mitigate risk. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I definitely have seen assertive outreach occur. Right. Um, yeah, and I've definitely been a happen. part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think it's as just fucking raw and authentic yeah, of what yeah. it used to be. I don't yeah. think it has that. that yeah. yeah well, there's something about it. Well, there's there's problems with it. I got knocked out once. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, like, you know. Yeah. yeah. But it, I think, I think that's why. Yeah, I yeah. think that there's a lot of things that we have to yeah, take into account now. You mean organisations are looking after the health and welfare of their staff? <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. 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 It's hard, isn't it? I think there's a kind of like a balance needs to be struck and maybe I'm not sure what you, what you both think about that and maybe mm-hmm. the pendulum struck, swung too far. I think there was something definitely really important about meeting people literally where they're at. Yeah. Like yeah. Literally yeah. on the street. Yeah. Um, 
Well, there's a local service, and I, I won't say who it is because I'm not sure if they want their cover blown as such, but um, they do an organised outreach every day right. for an hour every day, which is, yeah. no, it's not nine to five, but they're out in the community engaging with young people, talking to them, seeing what's going on. Like you can go out with them and they'll be like, this kid, that kid, they know all what's going on in the yeah. area. And it's so good and they yield such great results mm. that like other services like statutory services or um, like the local like other like drug and alcohol services or mental health mm. services are going to visit the council and saying, hey, can you give us any information on the young people or help us engage with young people mm. and things like that because of this program that they've set up. Yeah. It's really cool. Really, really good. Yeah, I just you got me back in touch with it. I've just, I had a dream about um, working in the homelessness sector again um, <laughs> wow. recently and uh, and a friend of mine, Jenny Smith, is now the um, head of the Council of Homeless, homeless Agents, Homelessness Agencies or something. Oh. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. uh, excuse my ignorance. I should know that. Um, she's been the... the we should too. That's fine. On, <laughs> excuse on all our ignorances. Currently. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, you've just got me in touch with that. There's something, there was something really incredibly special. I learned so much mm. uh, as a younger social worker in those days, mm. apart from meeting my lovely partner, Claire. Yeah. yeah. Fell in love over homelessness. It was great. <laughs> <That's> sweet. <laughs> um, yeah, and things, I, some really hard lessons. Like mm. I remember I worked, I, I used to moonlight, uh, was doing two jobs and uh, one was at the Osnum House Meals Program, which doesn't exist anymore, and literally spent a year befriending uh, two men who uh, had decided, had made a lifestyle choice pretty much to be homeless and to be and not take medication. Uh, wow. And, I, and, yeah, I really look back on that time and really had done a lot of soul-searching about my practice then because I kind of didn't accept it. Mm. And so, you didn't accept their decision. Didn't accept their decision. Mm. And um, so I used my powers for the relationship for evil and not good. Mm. And uh, I'll I'll never. Uh, and, and and why it was, yeah, well, it was a, definitely an ethical breach. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I I didn't get their consent to call the homeless psychiatry unit, and. Um, yeah, one person um, was known to them, and, and just, but as a result of that, he never engaged with the service again. So he he didn't come back for meals at that service in my time there, mm-hmm. which wow. was substantial. So that was really um, not not great. Mm. Um, really, like he had, it would have clearly suffered disadvantage as a result of that because I don't know where he would have got his meals from, mm. his night meal. And the other man, young man, um, was he stayed and continued, but was really super angry with me. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so it really, it will always stick with me and my privilege. Mm. Around my kind of idea of what's mm. my what's right or wrong for people, and yeah, I totally I betrayed them. Mm. Uh, they made a decision. As hard as that is to kind of, and they weren't children, so yeah, yeah, um, 
yeah. Sometimes those lessons are the hardest ones, aren't they? Like those really big, brutal ones. Like I've had a few of my own. Here's one, peeps, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, uh, you know, we all come to the field for different reasons and clearly a lot of us have, uh, are wounded. Mm. We're wounded healers mm. and uh, it's hard to kind of heal your own family so it's better to go out there and heal, help heal others in whatever way that means. And, uh, and uh, that's, I definitely fall into that category. So I think uh, um, being involved in social work and learning far more from the people I've worked with and families I've worked with than uh, they've learned from me, I'm sure, uh, has been incredibly helpful. I've bought it all home, so I'm absolutely a better husband and a better father because of it. No yeah. doubt about it. No doubt. Interesting. You had to be able to take your own advice, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a common thing with people that um, sometimes you'll find, I think I can't even remember who we were talking about this with, with someone, that said sometimes you'll give the best pieces of advice but you've got to be able to take them yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So no, definitely, but I think that's, I, I, I had psychotherapy for some years before um, uh, 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 when I actually just met Claire because I realised that I had a bit to work on if I wanted a decent relationship with um, the person I love. So, uh, and, and that person was Sue Jackson, who uh, is a social worker and family therapist. And she, uh, she kind of really inspired me to, be, you know, to actually go to Bouvery and do family therapy and get really fully immersed in the field of psychotherapy. And, um, and I'm really... Yeah, I think it absolutely uh, really helped form um, me being really conscious of working hard in my own family. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Did you want to finish? You had a point somewhere. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's gone. It's okay. It's gone. Moving <laughs> on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You mentioned Bouvery. Did you just do the family? I'm intrigued because I really like Bouvery. I love doing any time oh, I yeah. have right. an opportunity to do any of yeah. their trainings, I try and snatch it up. Yeah. Um, did you just do the family therapy, like, consulting there or did you facilitate trainings or what did your role there uh, consist of? Uh, was, well, I was there for 12 years, so I had lots of roles there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was uh, a manager there for quite a long time and, Managed the community services program area, which sort of engaged different different fields like uh, youth youth outreach and drug and alcohol and mental health and gambling, and uh, so did a whole lot of different kind of work with those fields and those workers around how they could kind of think about a psycho and community health and think about psychotherapy generally and also family therapy. Mm. And how they could kind of adapt that and use that in a kind of practical, useful way in their kind of work. So yeah, loved it. Totally loved yeah. that work. And I think I think I was saying earlier about systems work. And I think what really excites me nowadays is not just dealing with individuals and not just dealing with families and de- and dealing with whole systems. Mm. And uh, we can kind of change the way people think about or a system thinks about the way they're engaged in their practice across a whole area like drug and alcohol is, is kind of neat. Mm. Uh, so that was my main work there. And I also taught in the master's course there uh, in terms of life supervision and the odd lecture and 
Um, yeah, did lots of different things there. Mm. Uh, sort of research and bits and pieces. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about systems um, and systemic sort of issues or yeah. free, and, for example, in the drug and alcohol space, like yeah. what is an example of, of something like that that you, you could talk about? Uh, well, I guess it's like how you frame an issue with people. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, from my perspective, it's probably a radical perspective, not everybody agrees, is that I just do not see uh, individuals now. Mm-hmm. So I see people in relation to, and and so, and that's just how I see the world. And there's plenty of counter arguments to that. I've decided that that's my frame and that's important to me and that kind of works for me and the people I see. So, uh, you know, community family, uh, relationships um, are really important. And it can be even be relationships to drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. I've certainly had plenty of those myself. So uh, I guess I just frame things in that perspective now. And, um, yeah, and I think that it's just really hard if you're an individual going through tough times to, to you know, loneliness and... and um, What's the stat on that? I'm just thinking, um, yeah, you know, isolation and social isolation, Mm. I think, is now like the biggest killer in our society. Wow. In terms of, if you think about the stats on that, the World Health Organization has, I think, has stats on this, Mm. that, uh, yeah, social isolation and people and us kind of viewing people as individuals is really unuseful in terms of how we frame useful interventions for people. Mm. So uh, I try wherever possible to think about people in relation to and, uh, and also I think sort of how we think about our responsibility as a community to each other. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty important. And I think, I think one of the kind of positive stories about the COVID pandemic has been exactly that. Like I think there's been lots of examples of communities coming together in, a, in spite of real serious difficulty. Mm. Mm. Well, even I think something that sparks to mind as you've said that about, you know, a sense of community and people to come together, and we've definitely spoken about before, you know, sometimes it does take a village, you know, um, is what's going on at the moment in the flats in the city. Yeah. And um, I don't really watch the news, but <laughs> yeah. I briefly in passing had seen something last night. There was They were doing a coverage and a and, um, someone from like a food bank like organization had put a put an yeah. um, announcement out and said, you know, we need donations. Can you please help us? And within 24 hours, they had some astronomical amount of money donated. Yes. Food bank jumped on board. Yeah. Um, you know, harm reduction Victoria are there. Like there was a lot of um, a lot came from it, and just from a single call out to the community to assist. So you're right, I think it is massive. And even to think of it on a lower scale, the amount of little initiatives that have gone on through the pandemic. I, I know there was a story of a young female who just, I think it was her mother or someone who couldn't go and do her shopping herself and was in a high-risk category and she thought, you know, there's probably other mums and fathers and people that are going through the exact same thing. And so she just started a Facebook page and said, like, if you need me to do groceries for you, I will. And people jumped on board. And then there was just communities doing food shopping for people that couldn't leave or didn't have the resources to leave or weren't allowed to leave their homes mm. um, and just really came together, which I think is really lovely to see because I think often we fall in the traps of 
out of sight, out of mind or not my circus, not my monkeys, mm. you know, and it's very easy to turn a blind eye to, you know, people's pain. So. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think the flats is a really good example because also, um, like, let's face it, if we if we want to rely on government, well, they're often the sites of um, great constraint and, um, you know, structural constraint and often oppression and uh, Usually they're late to the party and, you know, if you think about serious issues that are affecting us globally and even and in Australia, then things like climate change and how um, they're constrained by ideological frameworks that most citizens would disagree with mm. and want active change that's really important to us. So why would we rely on government? It's much better to mobilise in terms of community and mm. Um, yeah, small networks. Mm. And yeah, often I think I think about that in terms of in terms of young people and in terms of families that sure uh, s- s- when you think about families and you think about uh, communities that often they can be the site of traumatic event and usually the answers in there as well. Mm. Um, and whether it's with um, the Curry Court or um, grandparents, <laughs> as, uh, I mean, it can be as small or as large as you want to think about how we kind of think about our interventions and think about change. Mm. Um, and I think, because often I think, and here's my critique of youth work, see what you think about this, is that <laughs> um, uh, I think the old one, which I think I don't think is re- relevant anymore, the old one used to be, you know, uh, blaming parents, mm. which is sort of unuseful because... You know, it doesn't kind of address the structural constraints or, or, or what young people want from their parents in a way which is sort of uh, brings parents into the equation or, or wider family members. Mm. Uh, and I think the new one is sort of this kind of, I'm not saying it happens all the time. However, <laughs> if we concentrate on the young person solely, then we're concentrating on the side of an individual like, and so everything is concentrated on the individual's responsibility to change, and that's just seriously unfair. Mm. Um, and sort of doesn't really kind of address structural inequality, justice, how community can help a child. Mm. <laughs> uh, mm. Anyway, uh, I don't know what do you think. Like, what's? It's interesting. I think I've definitely. Uh, it's something a theme that I've definitely heard I think even for me as a youth worker family the family therapy stuff intrigues me but probably if I think about when I was newer to the field definitely something that scared the shit out of me because I was like well what do I know to be Mm. doing any form of family therapy here like I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to do here but it's I think there's definitely a thing amongst youth work of oh I know I work with that young person yeah and there is a time and a place for that I definitely believe there is a time and a place for that but also if you're working with a young person that lives in a family Mm. unit to solely ask them to, you know, make changes to behaviour or to make changes for themselves, it's a broader issue. I think we'd be silly to not look at it holistically. Mm-hmm. They don't. It's not like they're independent adults that are living by themselves. Yeah, they they're a part of a unit. Uh, totally. And um, yeah, I think probably we should. Well, I should stop using the word therapy because I think, like, practically as a social worker, um, some of the best interventions I've seen have been involved with are where people just do kind of basic and really effective family interventions and family connections in a home. Mm. It's not therapy. It's good, solid um, family meetings and yeah. 
involving a couple of people. Mm. I even remember once going and having a chat with someone who um, I work with who does family work and I was like, I'm, I'm not doing any family work though. And, and I sat with her for a bit and she spoke to me about what we were doing and what appointments would consist of and what, a, you know, a normal visit, you know, how would mum be, how would dad be, blah, yeah. blah. And we had a chat and she was like, no, you are doing it. You're just not labelling it as that. And effectively I was just being a mediator between the young person and the family and, and it worked really well. They just weren't speaking the same language. Um, and once they sort of came to a unified response with things, it worked really, really well. But I think one of the things that we do in work is that we we do do a lot of the theory stuff or we do utilise a lot of the frameworks but we don't label it that as label it as that all the time. So then I think I think people who, um, and I myself included, aren't as confident in certain levels of their or areas of their practice don't realise that they're actually doing what they think they want to be doing. They're just not labelling it. Yeah, right. It's sort of like it's sort of uh, it can have a kind of um, elusive elite quality to it and it's, mm. it's not, I, I, I think... I think if you can run a meeting, you can run a family intervention. And often, I mean, I, I think the, the great thing that we can all draw on is we've all been in families. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the great thing about families is they're uh, it's a, often a race to the bottom. Like, mm. you know, like we we all can think about difficulties in our families, right? Like yeah. That's, we all have that in common mm. right across society's strata. And so... Uh, if you can run a family meeting, if you can get in touch with kind of like the difficulty and the great things in your family yeah. uh, and the kind of different, the varying relationships you've had, then it's a really useful starting point. And I think just like you're saying with the person that you were talking to recently, that mm. just facilitating something where people can actually actually acknowledge or hear each other's perspectives is really useful, super useful. Mm. Yeah, the communication breakdown is like a classic, isn't it? Like yeah. with the family relationships, the the um, couple relationships, even they talk about it with like even sports and things. Like if you're not talking to each other, mm. how do you know that you're sort of all playing the same game and just being able to, like you said, support the family to communicate with one another. And sometimes that's like over the phone, isn't it, when yeah. they're like they're living in different spaces or if you're in the same room, yeah. being able to help them. But there's some really quite basic things. Yeah. Um, but to be able to kind of be that person to help facilitate that, it's huge. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've met very few parents. I mean, have met a few. Like it's a small percentage of parents who yeah. truly want to do harm to their kids. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's tragic and and really uh, horrible. Mm. Uh, the vast majority of parents have goodwill often their behaviour doesn't represent that goodwill. <laughs> mm. And uh, and that's through no fault of their own. Often that's through um, you know, needing kind of help and coaching and support. Uh, and most parents want the best for their kids. It's, yeah. And, and it's a site, and children are often the site of great motivation for people to change. Um, how you kind of reach parents to kind of help them with that is kind of tricky. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because you can't, you know, you you can't reach out to them. You can't, you know, do you need help with your family? Do you need help with your family? You, you really need the people to identify that they need the support and to seek it, don't they? And then the next step is that you're going to need to make sure that they take on kind of what you were saying earlier, Shane, like actually start to action 
some yeah. of the things that you talked about, like it's well as as good as the kind of the quote that you said, but the uh, reflection talk is cheap. Yeah, essentially yeah. talk yeah. is cheap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I remember like we've had a conversation, um, Shane, about like my family and the the dynamic with the kids that we've got at home, mm. um, and it was so insightful. But just to have that, I guess, reflective opportunity to lay everything on the table and look how it all kind of was piecing together and the things that we were doing or not doing mm. um, was huge. It's like a little single session therapy that we had and it went such a long way. Mm. Um, but also I guess I can proudly say that we actioned some of the things that we had in that conversation um, and it's made a big difference. Yeah, so, wow. you know, yeah, it's, um, and it's the joke too that we're making about if you work in the field and, like, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. Like, sometimes, like, is, like, uh, being a youth worker or people that work with young people and families, like, you know, I said to Shane, like, we need some help. And my wife's a teacher. Like, it's quite (laughs) funny. It's like we we need a little bit of help. Yeah. Yeah. It's still by the, um, by good fortune, to all of us, I reckon. Like, if you're in a family. Yeah. uh, You're you're a razor's edge away from um, difficulty, really. Like mm. we all have difficult stuff that goes down in families. Don't mm. We all have loss. We all have uh, all sorts of things happen in families. We all have disagreements and conflict. Uh, that's common to all of us. And I, mm. um, I was thinking as you were talking that um, I think families are, well, parents are hyper-vigilant to blame and shame. And I think in the youth work field, we just tend to be really conscious of that. You know, like if you want to engage someone, you have to be really conscious of how, you know, the language you, we use, the way we want to engage people around being part of the solution. Mm. And, uh, yeah, people, parents are, especially parents where young people have, you know, been committing crimes or doing drugs or whatever they're doing, like it's... Um, like you can almost be guaranteed that the blame and shame is off the scale in those mm. with those parents. So in some way you kind of had to understand that and kind of lean into that with them. Mm. Yeah. If that makes any sense. No, it does. As you were talking, I was like remembering a family that a young person that I worked with in their family, and I was like, Jesus, that was ages ago, and then I just had a moment where I felt old. But yeah, you're right. I think it's a. I think. Communication is such a big one that gets thrown around. But I even think in, you think of the way that we would communicate as professionals, but then you think of the way that you would communicate with a young person or in a meeting, you're not going to communicate to them the same way. And it it totally makes sense that being able to have open communication within a family unit to feel more connected, to deal with, you know, disagreements or whatever issue occurs, it completely makes sense that there would be communication breakdowns there, but it sounds like such a simple thing mm-hmm. when really it's not. It, communication is huge, but it sounds like, oh, maybe if you just learn to communicate better. <laughs> like it sounds like a really easy statement when it's in fact not a lot of the time. No, yeah, it's not theoretical. Like I think the thing that I'd hate people to kind of listen to this podcast and take away the idea that there's some sort of highfalutin kind of oh, thing no. that's, that's hard to attain with this because I think you're right now. Mm. I think it's, it's actually... Really, I think family work's really practical. Yeah. Mm. Be in the room with people and help them do something a bit different. Mm. Help them practice doing something that's kind of useful, constructive, and different mm. uh, than a pattern that's potentially destructive or not useful. Mm. Uh, I think you're right on the money there. It's it's not kind of 
deep navel-gazing. Navel yeah. It is not that. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe a lot of families would potentially... I'm trying to think. But there would be a level, I think, for people. And it's the same in any, any like, field, like drug and alcohol, mental health, family therapy, whatever. It's the same. There's a lot of anxiety about sitting down and doing talk therapy. But yeah. I think there's... It's not always about talk therapy. Like you're just no. saying, like, practical tools, like, do mm. things. Like, even when yeah. I think about cooking meals with young people or teaching them to apply for their learner's permit or, you know, sitting with them while they do that, doing practical things is a really great way to engage anyway. But I think a lot of the time people get caught up in it. And even I'm so guilty of doing it. Even when I think of family therapy, I just think of, like, the psychologist couch and, and the yeah, family right. sitting there yeah. talking about their issues, not talking about, which is silly of me because I I don't sit there with clients on the couch <laughs> in engaging in that manner. Yeah. That would be extremely strange for me. But, yeah, I think being able, practical is a really good point, being able to engage in a practical activity. It could be something as simple as sitting with a family whilst they cooked a meal, mm. you know, Absolutely. or helping them cook a meal. Or, that is the perfect example. It's the perfect example. Mm. Like if you think about uh, high pressure points in families, it's usually the morning mm. routine and uh, evening routine, whatever that is. If yep. there's even a yes, routine. It is. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes there's not a routine. Yeah, and yeah. It's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, these pressure points and how you engage families in the interactions they're having is mm. really, really useful. Mm. Uh, one thing that kind of um, strikes me that we need to um, investigate ourselves as practitioners is how we uh, think and respond to conflict mm. in our own families, our own family of origin and our own family of creation. And, uh, and that's something that families often need assistance with. So, you know, just a bit of regulation. Yeah. You know, disagreement's fine. And it's, uh, um, arguing's fine as long as you argue well. Mm. <laughs> you know, as long as you're not hanging shit on each other and mm. kind of freaking out too much, it's it's okay to to have conflict. Mm. Yeah. And most families kindly practice it that, you know? Yeah. And especially families who are vulnerable have had significant trauma in their lives, they clearly need assistance with that because it's just hard to regulate. Mm. It's just, just a simple physiological thing. Yeah. Um, I even think of... Um, like things like intergenerational trauma. Yeah. If you're if you're stepping into a session with a family and trying to assist in something like arguing well, like how do you argue well if it's not something that I think as practitioners we forget that parents were kids once as well and we don't know how they were raised or what sort of, you know, family unit that was in or, you know, how they were treated. There's probably their own traumas and the way that even things of how they were punished or how they, you know, went to school or mm. whatever that might be. I think sometimes we forget that there's parents have their own shit too. It's not just that yeah. it's just this kid that has an issue with their parents. Like everybody mm. has mm. their own shit. And intergenerational trauma is a massive one. But even being able to teach or even being able to, I don't know, role model or show parents how to argue mm. well. So I'm fluffing <laughs> everywhere in your lounge room because I have a hole in my jacket. Um, yeah, being able to, t being able to, I guess, teach people that so that they can move forward and make those changes is, I think, massive. But I think arguing well is a funny one. Like you said that. I've heard that before in trainings about arguing well, but it's a funny one because you, on, on, you, 
automatically when you think about arguing with somebody, you just think it's a negative. That they're mm. it fighting. just has a yeah, like fighting, it's aggressive, it's bad, it's not mm. yeah, it doesn't have like a productive element yeah. to it, I guess. And I think arguments can have productive elements. Like no, well, you think about it yourself in your own relationships, mm. and your own intimate relationships or relationships in your family where you've got somewhere useful. And um, I don't know, for me, it's usually been the source of contention, you know. Mm. You sort of go somewhere more interesting. Mm. You find out something more vulnerable about yourself and about the other person. You show, you, you show yourself mm. in a different kind of way, which is uh, really helpful for building something um, more solid, I think. Mm. And I think the challenge in that would probably be the parent um, being taught to lose the argument if they actually lose it, right? Because there's all it's all well and good to to permit the family to argue well. Yeah. But surely the young person's going to be right sometimes. That must be a challenge for the parent to to kind of cope with that, I would imagine. Well, that's if you're thinking about the idea of arguments being about winners and losers. Like, yeah, right. that's a good point. About, yeah, okay. Can it still also be about points of view or yeah. about agreeing to disagree or negotiating uh, positions? That I, are, that are reasonable for both parties. I mean, I mean, it could be about what you're saying, Josh, but, uh, I mean, it's like it's... Yeah. I mean, I think the thing for me is that uh, lots of us don't have a lot of practice at arguing well often. Mm. Mm. And I think I think what's really helpful for me is that um, practice about that where it's facilitated is kind of useful. And then also, like, the new kind of brain science that's coming out now all the time around just regulation and brain chemistry and how we kind of uh, understand ourselves in terms of, um, you know, our reactivity is really useful as well because, mm. of course, that affects other people. Mm. Mm. That's a massive one. I think it's probably something that um, I did a couple of somatic practice trainings and before going into the current role that I'm in has been massive for me. I predominantly work with kids in out-of-home care. So yeah, being right. able to regulate regulate yourself in a space where there is enormous amounts of dysregulation, yeah. actually it sounds, I remember the first training I did and, and the person we was sitting and we were doing some deep breathing, we had hands on the stomachs, hand on the heart, and I'm a pretty spiritual mm. person so I didn't think much of it, but the person, another person I worked with that was there was just like, oh, it's fucking wanky breathing shit. And I was, yeah, like, right. I was like, oh, okay, you know, it's not yeah. for everybody. Um, but it was probably something that I was interested in because it's, yeah, I don't know, it, li- it aligns with my values and my belief system. But to actually utilise that in your practice mm. and be like, fuck, this actually works mm. is so astounding. And I even say it now when I do trainings with staff I'll say, you're going to think I'm a bit woohoo here and I'm a bit of a wanker, but I'm going to say it anyway. And explaining, you know, centering yourself, where are you at? Are you heightened? Are you, you know, out of your window of tolerance? Because if you're out of your window of tolerance, you are no good to that young person out Mm. there right now. Take two seconds, do some deep Mm. breathing, ground your feet, you know, feel your big muscle groups, recenter and go back out and try again. Mm. Actually has astronomical yeah, like changes to practice. It's crazy, I think. I think it'll be really good to get lots more people on board with that because it is. I use it every day, obviously not at the moment, but every day. I use it when I'm out and about. Yeah, I think it's a really great um, expo- like a great opening up of, of practice generally now about what you're saying in terms of body work and mm. um, somatic work. Um, there's a whole lot of things that I think we're really getting in touch with now, which is actually research-based. So yes. Yeah. it's fantastic. It's really exciting. Yeah. And I think we've touched on it before. I think 
you know, if you rewound, you know, 30 years ago, there wasn't the equine therapy and the art therapy and it wasn't just as common now. Like I think I sit in care teams now and it's like, oh, have we tried equine therapy? And it's just such a common thing, art therapy, equine therapy or, you know, doing a specific, you know, schools having the the animal therapy in class Mm -hmm. now, like worked into their schedule. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot more common now and it's really exciting because there is actually, it's, it opens things up so much more and provides a lot more opportunity for for anyone really, but which is great for young people, but for anyone really to find, you know, a different profession or even a different therapy that's going to suit you because we can't unfortunately just pigeonhole people into, you know, like talk therapy doesn't work for everybody. That's right. Mm. Yeah, so you've sort of got to meet people where they're at. And, yeah. And part of that's also understanding um, what sort of approach is going to kind of fit for that person, right? Yeah. Mm. Just lost my train of thought, I think. Sort of like, I don't know if it's pick, being picked up on the mic, but, you know, like we are literally in a family here, people. Yeah, that's like right. There's, 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 we are. There's, there's dinner being made in the other room and people walking around and blowing noses and <laughs> dogs oh, and doing stuff. there's two sleepy doggies that look oh, very right. cute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something very relaxing about watching dogs, isn't there? I think we can learn a lot from dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily for the dogs, they can just sleep whenever they like. And they, 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 tru- just, they can nick off in, in the middle of the chaos and yeah. go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, they're truly not individuals. They truly understand uh, that they are def- their identity is part of a pack. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I want to be here. Mm. I had a question for you that came from one of the very first things that you said, so yeah. apologies for completely changing direction, but... I just wanted to get your opinion. So I um I had heard or kind of like I guess just through conversations with young people and families and what have you about um the um, how do you phrase it? I guess like the 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 harsh punishment of parents or particularly fathers to their kids in New Zealand, growing up in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. And I read um, Mark Hunt's book. I don't know if you've had opportunity to read it or not, but you're familiar with him, the UFC yeah, fighter, yeah. kickboxer and stuff. Yeah. And he talked about I think his he dad. came from my suburb. Okay. Really? Yeah, yeah right. Small he talked about his dad um, being pretty brutal with his yeah. sort of um, chastisement and stuff. Yeah. Interestingly, so I don't know if I've, I think I mentioned to you this, his favourite thing to use to to hit the kids was with the pipe from the the um yeah. that goes from the washing machine to the sink mm. because it wouldn't break mm. so yeah. easily. But I was just curious growing up in New Zealand, is that like quite a common sort of thing or is it a stereotype that that you, that I've heard of? Um, and why? I'm just curious. I hear it. Well you know. I, I think it's potentially a stereotype. Okay. I think well a, well a generalization that mm. yeah, I think um I think there's lots of examples of people parenting all sorts of ways in New Zealand and I'm not sure if it's even a cultural element. Some people might say it is. I, I'm not going to kind of go down that track because sure. I feel like I can't comment on that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But what I'd yeah. say is that uh, because of my own upbringing, mm. Mm which was, yeah, abusive, that uh, I've I decided that I, for a long time in my, my career, I wanted to um, give back. And so my way of giving back in that field was, you know, around violence towards women and children was to work with men who use violence mm. towards women and children and then to think about that systemically. So... Um, 
yeah, I think we've got a long way to go in the society. And I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I've probably want to hand it over to you, Nat. Like, I, I think uh, I continually think about that as a man, continually think about how I conduct myself towards Claire and the boys, continually think about what messages my boys are getting. Uh, and uh, I'm very, very hopeful because of the recent changes in Victoria, particularly federally, but particularly in Victoria around the amount of money being given to, um, you know, to the field of violence against women mm. and uh, the strides being made in that area. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think I've grown up with my uh, absolutely signing effects on my mother mm. and um, they are long-lasting and terrible. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I probably haven't answered your question. I, I don't know. It's um, No, no, uh, you didn't have to answer it. I just yeah. I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask you because, I've, like I said, I've sort of heard it um, sort of, through work and what have you that... I think there's a problem yeah. in New Zealand, a serious problem, mm. like there's a problem, and, I, and so I hesitate to say it's cultural or it's about New Zealand. Mm. Uh, uh, what I would say is that there is a serious, serious problem of violence against women mm. and children. Okay. And there's an absolutely serious problem in this country as well. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. No, uh, when is it okay that... A woman. When do we decide that it's okay for a woman to die every week at the hands of a man? Mm. Mm. Like it's just not acceptable. Mm. Uh, and that's what's happening in this country. Mm. Um, I might have got that stat slightly wrong. I think uh, no, but I, no. I think it is. I think it's. No, I, I think, think one woman right. dies every week at the hands of a man in this country. Yeah. Mm. It's just if that was if that was men dying. Mm. We'd be having there'd be some sort of amazing intervention. I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe. I've just realised what um, kick-started, side note, but I've realised what might have kick-started that yeah. is um, Monster Warriors. Yeah. Because yeah. there's obviously a really brutal, violent yeah. scene in yeah. that with um, yeah. with, the, with the, one of the main characters yeah. like, quite brutally assaults his wife in it. And I just, I'm just, as I'm thinking, I'm wondering if that maybe kick-started the generalisation or not, but it's not, well, nonetheless. Think, but, yeah. Well, I think that, that, that was written by Alan Duff, a Maori man who... Uh, wanted to, and a great piece of literature, actually, like mm. uh, really commend that book in terms of it's just its writing. Oh, it was a book first, was it? Before yeah, it really? yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, just to kind of shine a light on what was happening mm. from his perspective as a Maori man. Yeah. Mm. And so clearly doing something, like clearly taking a stand, clearly um, not going to be passive to what he witnessed. Yeah. Mm. And I think that in my way, I've tried to do that too in a small way. Like, yeah. Um, to s- support women and children to um, be free of violence and yeah. uh, for men to kind of find other ways to uh, be in our society and have relationships, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm feeling very, I'm feeling really um, fumbly about this. Like, Ineloquent because I think it's sort of it's very personal to me, mm. and uh, yeah, I sort of had been involved in that field for a long time. I don't do that work so much anymore. Mm. I just it, um, I got a bit worn out, mm. <laughs> and it would be imagine. exhausting. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right when you you spoke about the um, money that they're pouring into working with um, 
family violence now is awesome. And I yeah. I was really lucky to participate in um, the Safe and Together Institute training. Right. So David Mandel, he runs the Safe and Together Institute in the States. Right. Um, and they rolled out a heap of training here in um, Australia called Stacey. Um, and so it was the Stacey Project. And I was really lucky to be a part of that. But I think one of the biggest things out of that, like you were saying just before, oh, you know, I try to do the small things to, you know, help align with women and children so they don't have to live in a world of violence. But I think even the small things, I think, is what will get us there. Like, there is a need for huge things, absolutely, and there is a need for funding and resources and all of that. But I think even for me, one of the most astronomical things that was observed after doing the Stacey training was just the language change of victim to survivor. Yeah. And the change in women or children or any victim, when you stopped calling them a victim and you started calling them survivors... Mm was crazy it, because it, it, it affords them inadvertently and subconsciously it affords them an opportunity. It doesn't, mm. you know, victims vary labelling and mm-hmm. it implies that that's them forever. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something really beautiful just about the language change and even seeing that happen with, you know, old school child protection practitioners saying things like survivors and not victims, yeah. that's a win. Yeah. And we talk about the small wins and I think, mm. you know, Small wins probably won't get us there. I think we need some big wins in that area. But I think having having those small wins will get us across the line. Hopefully. Well, yeah. I'm yeah. crossing my fingers. Well, things like police being able to take away uh, the men... Yeah. ..rather than um, suggesting that women leave is kind of helpful. Mm. <laughs> Just in that, that, that small step there. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and another one that I liked... And I thought maybe this is where you're going and it obviously wasn't, which was some of the new ads that came out. Well, they're not all new anymore, but, like, with the bloke sitting around the table and then the guy kind of being disrespectful on the phone or making jokes about women and things and the other guy's Pulls him pulling up. him up. Yeah. Yeah. There's I think it's one. that sort of stuff too. Yeah, for sure. I was just going to say there's the one at the moment and it's people going to justify or defend uh, um, their perpetrator. Yeah. He does this to me because, and they yeah. pause it so you don't get the reason. She does this when she's angry, but it's because, and they yeah. pause it. And so they continuously pause it and say, actually, the because doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the step before. Yeah. It's not okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is, I think they've only just recently brought them out. I've only yeah. sort of just started, I don't watch too much cable TV, so I don't. Cable TV? Mm. <laughs> Free to air. <laughs> <laughs> I meant free to air, like with ads. Your, is it in your Optus yeah. box? You? I don't have an Optus box. No one does anymore. You're a hip, you're you're a hip young person. You have Netflix, wouldn't you? Or Amazon? Yeah, or that's or what I meant. I was trying or... to say like my streaming services don't have yeah. ads, so ads, right. I think yeah. it's yeah. a new ad campaign, but it's potentially not because yeah. I've just not watched normal TV. Yeah, no, I've seen it. It's, it's mm. quite good. Yeah, yeah. But that's where it yeah. needs to come from, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? it's that community stuff. It's the, mm. it's literally me saying to a young person or a friend, yeah. bro, that's not cool, you can't, you can't talk like that. Yeah. yeah. Or you can't, do, you can't do that. For sure. You know, that's mm-hmm. where, you know, um, I think that's where there's like those community grass level sort of things come up. Like we talked before about the blokes advice. Yeah. I don't know if, you've, if you're on Facebook, but there's this group called Blokes Advice. Right. And, and it, I think it might have started off as a bit of like a pin up on the, in the garage wall kind of calendar sort of like, you know, photos of girls and inappropriate jokes and what have you and that comes up not really the inappropriate jokes but pictures of girls and things like that but amongst it is so often guys posting on there um 
pretty much saying, guys, I need help. This is the problem that I'm facing at the moment. Mm. And hundreds, like literally two, three, four hundred comments underneath it of just support mm. um, suggestions. Uh, where, which state are you in? Because it's a, online, you know, it's Australian based. But um, which state are you in? Try this, try that, like all these different suggestions. But I think uh, amongst all of that is um, is that I guess that positive reinforcement from other men. Yeah. Which is yeah, yeah. like it's not really very common, and um, fortunately, but also unfortunately, I guess it's pretty active online because I guess there's an sense of like you know anonymity to it you're mm. not having you know all the blokes sitting around in a circle mm. but um yeah it's really really cool and and I think that it's 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 some of those sorts of spaces as well where those messages get put across like you know I remember seeing some like oh you know that I'm just making it up but essentially like um you know having a really hard time at home missus is pissing me off this that the other and instead of like negative or really inappropriate comments it's go and get help, try this service, try that. Don't go home for a few days if you need to. Anyone you can stay with. Like, mm. And these are just what other blokes. Practical like, advice too, yeah. yeah. And it's not a community service page. Like sure, <laughs> some of the people might be working in the community services, but, um, yeah, it's just like real, I guess, like sound old-fashioned kind of. Like, mm. Yeah, it's just really cool. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of that mm. sort of stuff, like where we might see change is, is just through those community Connections. Connections, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. 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 I think there's really something special about men, men like giving each other advice or supporting mm. each other. There's something really special about that because historically that doesn't it doesn't occur. Yeah, yeah. So I think right. there's something really special, whether it is, you know, family violence, whether it is mental health, drug and alcohol, like mm. whatever it like the issue is, the disconnect could just be an argument with your partner. I think there's something really lovely about the connection between men mm. because it's not what you would expect, I guess. Yeah. But, like, there's absolutely no reason that, you know, men shouldn't talk the exact same way that women talk. Mm. Um, but I think there's just something really special about that and especially in in situations like, you know, reaching out. And I think there was a specific example you'd given a while ago about the dude not wanting to go somewhere on his own. And so people had, he had to get uh, somewhere and he wasn't feeling well and he yeah, didn't want to yeah. go or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So even that, like I just think the 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 concept of men being vulnerable with each other as well oh, yeah, yeah. has really powerful, mm. can have really powerful impacts. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he pretty much posted and said, I got two free tickets to a huge, it was like Ozzy Osbourne or mm. like some old school rock dude. That I don't know anyone else apart from Ozzy Osbourne. I was going to say. Alice Alice Cooper. It was Alice Cooper. It was Alice Cooper. So he pretty much said, I've got tickets to Alice Cooper, but my anxiety is through the roof. I can't go. If anyone wants the tickets, just let me know. Gigs in Melbourne. I'll like, whatever. I'll get them to you, whatever. And it was, he was flooded with responses. You can do it. Come on. Like, you know, try this strategy, try that strategy, try and go for half, just go in the door. Like, yeah, this sort of thing. It was really cool. Yeah, and wasn't yeah. there people like, we're going, where are you seated or something? Yeah, like I think that. so. We'll yeah, yeah, we'll go with, with you. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah, it was really cool. I love that. Mm. Yeah, so basically men have to take responsibility for it. Is that what you're saying now? No, no, I don't think no, men have think... to take responsibility for it. I think there's... I... I think there's some don't secrets you? in there, though. Oh, I think they do, don't they? Like in terms of violence towards women. Violence towards oh, women. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. there's a there's yeah. a it's actually a men's issue, not a women's issue. Men yes, need to 100%, step yeah. up. That's right. 
Yeah. And it's, I, I know I've thought about it before because like I've driven down, the, I was driving down the road and I saw this guy and this girl and I was like, are they arguing? Is he roughing her up? Mm. Or are they like mm. play fighting, play fighting yeah. cutesy stuff? Yeah. And I pulled over and I was like, what am, what am I going to do? And then I saw her turn around and laugh and she jumped and hugged him and I was like, okay, they were just play, like playing, it was fine. Mm. But part of me was like, you have to do something. Yeah. But then the other part of me was like, shit, but what happens next? Mm. You know? So it's a really hard call, especially in an unknown space, like yeah. where if it's your yeah. mate, you know, you're going to be pretty comfortable. Mm. You, it, well, that could also be uncomfortable mm. to pull your mate up, but I guess it's safer. Yeah. Then, mm. Yeah, but it's... Different, it's, um, different risks, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I but guess the initial alternative, you're potentially putting yourself at risk if you were to jump mm. in, which unfortunately... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess it's just it's an interesting thought um, and conversation to have with just with, with the concept of that of like, I guess, um, men's res- responsibility to do it but to, to, yeah. to kind of uh, speak to that or try and intervene or... Well, it's also how we you engage know. young men, isn't it? Yeah. This work. Yeah. So we kind of have conversations that it might be uncomfortable or... Mm. So we might think around of our remit, but actually they're totally in our remit to be mm. yeah. having conversations about with young men about how they conduct themselves towards women, mm-hmm. yeah, how they speak about women, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? We'll get there. We'll have to chip away at it though. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's just small things. I remember this one kid, like, oh, that bitch. I'm like, well, I ain't got a second. Yeah, yeah, like roll come on. and pull them up. Yeah. Come on, you know, what's the, use a better word. Yeah. And I'm a big, like I use humour for everything. Yeah. So, yeah, like I kind of found it easy. But I also had a good rapport with him. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even some of the conversations you hear on the phone, right, mm. when you're driving the young person somewhere, maybe they're on their phone to their mum or their girlfriend. Yeah. And, mm. But they're great opportunities, aren't they? They're fantastic to try and, opportunities. Um, you know, have that conversation. For sure. Yeah, yeah, big time. Mm. Mm. Even I remember a perfect example I had once was a young person and hearing the way she spoke to her mum and I was like, oh, my God, Mm. you can't speak to her like that. (laughs) And then um, we acted like full circle. There was a person actually abused her mum at the supermarket and I just happened to be there at the same time. And she was, who the fuck do you (laughs) think you are speaking to my mum like that? And went nuts. But it was an awesome opportunity to sit down with her and reflect and go, that's how you speak to your mum but you didn't like it when that person, what's the difference? Let's flesh this out a little mm. bit. And she was like, I love my mum. That person doesn't even know my mum and they spoke to her and I love my mum. I can't believe I do that. And I was like, okay. Mm. And, and honestly, for her, it was literally just refrat, like not, not even reframing it, just saying to her, you know, this happened and you didn't like it, but I watched this occur. And it was like putting the thoughts in front of her, in front of her so she could see them. She was like, that's true. That mm-hmm. is really true. So I think, and even being able to pull young people up, like you said, Shane, being able to role model behaviours for young men is massive. Young men and women, I think, is really good. Mm. I think it's a really important part of our role, of our role as workers to be role modelling behaviour. And I think that's something the men that I work with actually do really well is to role model the way to treat women in the workplace and, and, and clients in turn see that and see how you interact with women. Mm. I think it's a really good thing. I just think we have to keep going. Mm. That's right. Plenty of work to still do, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 One day at a time. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, are we? Yeah? Okay. We finish every podcast with a final tricky question. It's not tricky. If you had any words of wisdom or pieces of advice for new people coming into the field or um, maybe potentially... (laughs) Getting into family therapy. Yeah. (laughs) People that might want to try family therapy or... um, Or just family work. Maybe just family work. Yeah. Yeah. What would your nugget of gold be? Nuggets Um, of gold. Yeah, wow. Not sure. I, I'm not sure about the family. I actually prepared a little bit of it for this. I love that you have that. That's so me. Yeah. <laughs> Something I do. Um, so I, I'm not really, I'm not really sure about the family work component. I think that you know, I'd absolutely uh, um, want to kind of invite people to kind of think about how they would want to start working relationally or with families or systemically. Uh, my my first thing though I think is just sort of like um, I think going for that kind of idea of being true true to yourself it's like know yourself like mm-hmm. sort of so and I think just from what we were saying earlier around regulation and around uh, that conversation is that I think it's really important just to really concentrate on your own self awareness mm-hmm. so that you can be truly then present for other people would be if you can be present for one person and potentially you can be present for more than one person in a room it's kind of really helpful when you know yourself. Mm. Uh, um, so that would be one big, big bit of uh, uh, advice or an invitation to kind of think about your practice, I mm. think. Um, and I think the, the other thing I'd say is just, um, which is not, not about that, it's more about integrity, I think, is just okay. if you do nothing else, then um, then just think about your integrity and kind of how you um, are staying true to that and staying true to your own beliefs and values, I think, is really important mm. in your practice. You know, what you're agreeing to with your organisation, whatever that is, I think that's, I think that's really... When I haven't done that, I've, I've got undone, I think, mm. in the past. Um, the other one is sort of like, and just don't forget to move your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, Especially at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Move your body. Listen to your body. Mm. Yeah. Um, glutes and muscles, not just for sitting on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like stand up desks are a real thing now. And I'm like, yeah. this yeah. should have been a thing ages ago. Yeah. <laughs> I still need to get one. Did you have yeah. one? I have one in my old job, not not my current job. Right. They were the best. I loved it. Mm. Yeah. I used to kind of have music on and I kind of be kind of dancing nice. and working and stuff but like without even kind of realising it. Just you can imagine that in six four all skinny dancing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, that's so forward thinking. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Like, yeah, I've had a stand-up desk for about 10 years now. I totally saved my life. See, if you're not doing real old-fashioned social uh, youth work and social work and you're getting, you're not doing assertive outreach, yeah. then you absolutely need to get off your ass and have a stand-up <laughs> desk. That's what I'd absolutely say that. Like that's... Yeah. Or live a, like bring back old school outreach, and then we wouldn't that's, have to worry about right. stand up desks because we'll be out moving. Walk around the block and connect. Yeah, yeah. Not on your phone. Well, yeah. I, which I guess is fair enough. Like, it, you know, I don't want to sound like an old crusty, but I think there's something about also, uh, you know, walking. Like the old thing, I'm sure you do this. Yeah, like the car consultation is like huge in your field, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so the other consultation is mm. the walking side by side consultation, yeah, yeah. Like, which also gets your heart rate up, it gets you yeah. moving. Yeah. Useful. Walking supervision, too, people do now. Walking supervision. Yeah. yeah there's a concept. Yeah. 
Yeah. That'd be good You've for You've been doing me. a bit of that, have you, with people? Uh, I've only been yeah. um, the person being supervised and done it a couple of times. Right. Yeah. But um, when the world's back to normal, we'll try it. Yeah. Yeah, right. I can try yeah. it. Yeah. I, I just had that. a quick thought. When you did, like, sort of, like, that old-school grungy youth work, Yeah. Were you ca- <laughs> did you have to do much case note writing? When I was... Case note writing? Because I'm wondering if that's the catch. <laughs> yes. Old, because you have to do so much administrative stuff. Old-fashioned case note writing on did special do- case note forms with cursive writing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, had to do that. Yeah, so, I have so seen some of the old-school handwritten off. case notes. Yeah, I wondered well, if that was the did, reason. How do you do them nowadays? Oh, on a computer. Yeah, just type. Mm. Just type on the computer straight in. See, what a great skill to have. Yeah. Touch typing, awesome. I do remember when I learnt in school thinking, this is the most fucking useless. What, cursive? No, touch typing. Oh, really? I just wow. didn't think it was ever going to serve me a purpose That's ever hilarious. in life. And now everyone always picks on Catholic type. And see... The next generation won't even have to do that. Will they? No. just say, Siri. Yeah, they'll just look at it. That was literally a class you could yeah. do, like touch typing. It was yeah. an elective yeah. that I chose because yeah. well, I don't think I chose it. I think I didn't choose my electives and so they pigeonholed me into touch typing. Right. But so it's funny. it wouldn't even be a subject now. It would just be, it's like, all on laptops. That's right. Like, well, my boys know how to do it and they've never been taught it. They just do it because that's apparently naturally what you learn when you teach yourself somehow. Mm. Yeah, okay. Like their thumbs are amazing. They're really strong. They play games? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And texting. Yeah. And texting, yeah. Yeah, I have like a permanent indent in my finger from oh. where I hold my phone. Yeah, okay, it's not good. That's my... <laughs> All right, let's wrap this podcast yeah, up. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. We can still talk afterwards. <laughs> but no one's interested in hearing about the indent, in, indent, indent on your phone. Well, someone yeah. might... Oh, yeah. No, it's finger. my finger. Yeah. yeah. Someone might know how I can fix it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Heath, for joining us. Thank you. And thanks we so much for hosting it. us at your place as well. And yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. It was enjoyable. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.